The following podcast is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. Holy cow, can you believe it, guys? We're already back again in the same chairs as last week. It's so exciting. Doing another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. I'm Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. So if you guys were relieved that we were finished with our three-part series on the Zodiac, we have a PS for this letter that we're going to write to you today. Uh, We're all going to sign it, although Kelly's name is at the top. So if you don't like it, please direct your uh, ire Mm -hmm. towards her because what we've found as in the process of doing this Zodiac case out in California in the 60s that something somewhat similar, and I don't know, I'm the dummy today, and sometimes one of us comes in. You're the dummy well, today? It's always me. <laughs> but in particular, I'm the dummy today because uh, when we swapped text messages earlier, uh, Kelly is in the big chair on this one, and Katie said she was going to do a little research so that she would know what was going on. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to take a nap this afternoon and go home and feed the dogs. So I have no idea what we're going to talk about. So it's all you ladies. <laughs> so Alabama has its own version of a, of a Zodiac type killer. Um, and I'm going to give props uh, where they are deserved because the first time I've ever heard of this particular killer as being coined as the Alabama Zodiac is from a, another podcast. As I've mentioned it before that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and one of my favorites in particular is called Small Town Murder. Ooh. And so they did an episode uh, yeah, on- it. Yeah, from Jacksonville, Alabama, and they call it the Alabama Zodiac. It's from one of their releases back in November of 2021, and they do an excellent job. So it's very recent. It is very recent. Okay. Uh, Well, the crime is not, but the, the podcast episode is pretty recent. Yeah. And that's the first time I've seen it. I've seen this person referred to as the Alabama Zodiac, and it's because... When we get started, you'll see some parallels in uh, some of the crimes. I so. can't wait to hear about it because it's all brand new to me. <laughs> so we're going to go uh, to Jacksonville, Alabama, which we are finding ourselves back in Calhoun County. Do you remember our oh. episodes about Calhoun Didn't County? some lady shoot a couple of people with a shotgun and well, chop if, up their bodies or something? Did I get that right? If you weren't uh, around some woman, uh, you know, that was poisoning the shit out of everybody... <laughs> I mean, I women, multiple, uh, Nanny Doss, you know, coming up in the 50s, yeah. and then we had the Black Widow. Nanny Doss was our episode from last season entitled Laugh, Laugh I Nearly Died. Um, and then, or uh, uh, in the 70s, you have uh, Marie Hilly, who's poisoning everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, these crimes begin in 1977, so... Just down the road, Marie Hilly's, you know, having kids over at her house and putting poison in their Kool-Aid. And, you know, that's our third episode that we I was in first grade in 1977. It's a miracle I'm here today. (laughs) You didn't travel to Calhoun County. I love Kool-Aid. It was a dangerous place to be in Calhoun (laughs) County. And we're going to continue to find out why (laughs) uh, as we continue to kind of pick on Calhoun County. Sorry about that. But, you know, what am I going to do? Yeah. And well, Katie went to school there, so maybe she can tell us what I the did. hell's going on in Calhoun County. I lived in Jacksonville for about four years, and I guess I escaped. I guess you did. I didn't hang out 
where we're about to start the story, and, and we ne- we didn't go there. You didn't go to the local uh, make-out places. And <laughs> yeah, let's don't get too far. Uh, I guess I was an adult, and it wasn't the 70s, so, you know, you didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> right. You could just uh, make out in your own apartment. Right. <laughs> so, uh, we're going to start uh, in January, January the 3rd. 1977, to be exact. Uh, We have Jacqueline Nance and Kenneth James. Jacqueline is 18. Kenneth is 19 years old. And they are at a local makeout spot, uh, as you do. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Uh, Jacqueline was attending. uh, She was um, still in high school. And uh, Kenneth was a year out of high school. And you know, they're going to the, they're from the area. They're going to the local makeout spot. Okay. Yeah. So police officers are going to respond to a call there, uh, about gunshots in the area. Uh, when the police get there, this is what they find. They find Jacqueline's lifeless body lying covered in blood about 33 feet from the driver's door of the car. She's laying on the ground. Like she tried to get out and run. Yes. Okay. Sounding familiar. So far, very eerie. Now she's going to die later after arriving at the emergency room. Um, the keys are broken off in the ignition and then they're thrown about 150 feet from the car. Now they're, the police are not going to find that immediately. They're going to have to go back and search that area, but, but they're broken off in the ignition. And then thrown. So that was kind of, you know. Seems odd. It's, it, yeah. It seems excessive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, why do you have to mess with a getaway car? You brought a gun. Yeah, they don't need those keys anymore anyway, unfortunately. I mean, how really? difficult That's, is it to on purpose break a key? I mean, I guess people do it on accident all the time, but purposefully. I don't know. Yeah, just some. It's been a while since I've had a car that had a key that you had to stick in the ignition and turn. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, so... Uh, now, Kenneth has been shot, but can give a detailed description of the killer. Are we still sounding familiar? Yes, very. We are off of Broadwell Mill Road in Calhoun County. So for those of you who are familiar with that area, maybe you know where we are. Uh, what he says is a car pulled up behind her car. They are in Jacqueline's car. And she's in the driver's seat. And a car pulls up behind them. They The light's on bright. And they first thought it was a cop. Because like, hey, you kids, get away, you know. The eeriness continues. Don't be, uh, don't be out here making out, you know. So anyways, the, the bright lights come up on them. And he walks up to the window. The person from the car walks up to the window and asks them, why are they parked here? They're still thinking it's a cop. Like, why are you parked here? And before they can start answering, he just starts shooting. So she gets shot in the head. And that, I mean, she's done. That's yeah. it. I mean, she tries to kind of run and get out and crawl a little bit and, and she's done. And then uh, Kenneth is shot twice in the left shoulder, once in the neck and once behind the ear. He stumbles out of the car and actually makes it two-tenths of a mile down the road. And he, go, he gets to a trailer where a lady by the name of Diane Holmesley lives. Now, she's going to let him in, and she's going to call the police. She tells the police that she didn't actually hear a gunshot because she listens to her television very loudly every night, and she's older, and 
she just didn't hear it. There were no closed captions back then. No, no. And so um, they start checking a lot of leads. The the ABI is going to come in. They're going to look into everything. They're looking at the kids' families, their jobs, the schools they're going to, their their circles that they that they run in. They're then going to search the woods around the area, and that's when they're going to find those the keys that they were thrown. They're looking for that. They're, they uh, they want to find a weapon, a shell casing, something, but they don't find any of that. They just find those keys. A lot of gunshots in this crime and no shell casings. They're not finding any of that. So, okay. uh, so far, we're very, very similar to the Zodiac, yeah. right? Okay. Now we're going to fast forward from January of 77. We're going to go to July 17th. 1977. So we're going to go a few months down the road here. And we have Donna Tucker and Howard Mark Martin. He goes by Mark. Donna is 18 and Mark is 19. Now, Donna is a freshman at Jacksonville State University in medical technology. Mark's father is a pastor of of the Riverside Baptist Church. Uh, They are engaged to be married. And they are, by all accounts, just like the perfect little couple, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark was accepted to JSU, but he decided to go to Gadsden State, the Pell City campus, his first two years, because it's a little bit cheaper. So he's trying to be economical. He works in the evening at a gas station pumping gas. It's not an occupation. Back in the day when that still was a thing. Yeah. So that's what he does at night. And she, as I said, she goes to JSU in the fields of medical technology. They both graduated from Springville High School. They're both very, very popular. Donna was the salutatorian of her class. So just, you know, a very bright girl. Now, she's also um, involved uh, in the student council. She was vice president. Um, She was at JSU on an academic scholarship. She was Miss Springfield in 1976. She was also in Junior Miss, so, you know. Attractive, we, multi-talented, very smart. Yes. All-American girl. Um, yeah. Yes, yes. She was in the band and active in the Springville United Methodist Church. Now, Mark, not to be outdone by Donna, <laughs> was all St. Clair County in football because when Springfield is actually in St. Clair County, okay. Alabama, which Jacksonville's in Calhoun County. So it's just right there. Um, so he's all St. Clair County in football and basketball. Uh, he, as I said, he works nights pumping gas at this gas station and his boss loves him. Mm -hmm. He just, you know, a really likable guy. Um, he was being looked at by a number of colleges for a football scholarship, but unfortunately he hurt his knee and that's why he's no longer, he's, you know, accepted to JSU, but decided to go to Gadsden State. He is the church training director for his father's church. Remember I said his father was the pastor of Riverside Baptist and is the Sunday school secretary to these people. So all around good guy, all American guy. Yes, both of these people are. And so um, they're, what they would do is on weekends, that was their time to hang out together because during the week, she's in college, he's at a different college, you know, and they meet up on the weekends. And the typical thing that they would do is they would grab some type of food and they would drive out to Germania Springs Park in Jacksonville and they would have a picnic. And this was on Sunday nights. 
They would do this and he would drive her back to school. She would get dropped off at the service station as he's finishing his shift. And then they would go have okay. their picnic okay. and then he would drop her back at school. So that was, that was a standard for the two of them. As I said, they were engaged to be married. Um, so Frank Riddle owns this Riverside Gulf station where Mark works. And he's the one who's sort of, he's interviewed a lot in regards to this case and, and, and as a suspect, you mean? No, as a, as a witness okay. and, and okay. someone who can kind of speak to their character. Um, so, um, on one particular night, he's waiting on Donna to come by for their weekend meetup. She gets there, they get in his car and they go to the park, the Germania Springs park about 10 PM. Because they're kids and staying up late, I mean, it's no big mm-hmm. deal for them. I mean, right. me at 10, 10 p.m., I've been asleep. Yeah, well, exactly. It's Same. the only time they're getting to spend together. I'm, you know, I'm sure they're yeah. making the most of it. And they spend every little moment with each other. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, young love, and, and we're going to spend every little second together before you have to go back to school. So. Ah, the good old days. I remember those. Now I'm just glad to be alone at night. <laughs> so they get to the park about 10 p.m. They're at the Germania Springs Park in Jacksonville, and they get there, and they say there is a man already in the park sitting on a bench, uh, and they walk by him, and they say hello. Uh, they lay out their blanket on the ground. It's about 20 yards away from the guy. Uh, there's, a, there's a tennis court area which is near where they are and the tennis courts are lit up there's lights over the the tennis courts and um so they lay out their picnic and they're just having their picnic there on the on the ground there the man gets up and he walks right up to them so much so that later um they uh, mark is going to say that he walks very close to them, like within three feet of them. It was noticeable. Gets in their space. Gets in their space. And he asked for a cigarette. And there, of course, neither one of these people smoke. Yeah, they don't have a cigarette. Yeah. And they don't have a cigarette. And so he's like, okay. So he goes back to his bench. And they're sitting there. He gets up again, comes over, gets right in their space again. And this time he's going to ask for a match. No, we don't have a match. Yeah, that's a dated ask, too. <laughs> yeah. God, Today, really? you ask somebody for a match, and people are looking at, what the hell are you talking what about? What is a match? What? Um, so, anyway, so then he goes and sits down, and then a third time, he's going to get up. This time, he's not going to come straight for them. He's going to walk around them and come at them from a different angle. So, this guy's weird this time i was just thinking when he comes up from a different angle this time he has a pistol okay and he i'm gonna apologize guys but i'm gonna walk you through this what he does okay so he orders them to stand up and he holds the pistol right to donna's head and he tells mark to take off his clothes and he's telling mark that he's doing this so that mark won't run away i'm probably still gonna run away i don't care Mm -hmm. i mean you have a gun he orders Mark to take off his clothes and Mark complies because he has the gun on them right on Donna's head. He orders Donna now to take off her clothes. He makes Mark move back and sit down on the blanket and he tells Donna to lie down on the blanket. He keeps the pistol to her head and just begins running his hands all over her. 
she starts crying and then actually begins praying for him because she's a sure a wonderful person, an incredible person. He takes the gun off of her and he pauses. And they think, okay, well, this has gotten to him. It's having an effect. Yes. And he then moves to Mark and does the same thing. And this sort of shocks them because most of the time, and in many of the crimes that we talk about, the woman is the target. Mm -hmm. But it seemed to be both of them the target. So he's doing the same thing to Mark. And then he goes back to Donna, but this time he's more aggressive. He's got the gun on her, but he's, he's being more aggressive. And at this point in time, Mark stands up and so does the man. But I left out an important, what made Mark stand up is when he's being more aggressive with Donna, she's going to scream. And he's going to smack her. He's just going to hit her. Mm. Okay. Okay. So Mark's had So then Mark's going to stand up and so does the guy. And Mark is going to move in between Donna and the man. Now Mark is still, they both, they do not have any clothes on. Right. So Mark is going to move in between Donna and the guy and he's going to say, all right, we've had enough. He's going to start moving towards, the man's going to back up a little bit. And he has a gun. Forgetting that he has gonna, a gun for a moment. He's going to kind of back up. Like, I think it, it, it it's a, almost like it, it shocks him a little bit. It kind of yeah. takes him back, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he backs up and then Mark says, uh, that's enough. And you're not touching her again. And so that's when the man shoots Mark. He shoots him uh, twice and Mark falls. And for just a little bit, he blacks out. Because he's been shot twice, I definitely would probably black out. I mean, so he after he does this, he then turns and shoots Donna twice in the head. She actually gets hit in the back of the head one time, and then on the left shoulder because she 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 tries to turn right and, and get away and gets hit in the shoulder too. But Donna is still breathing; she's still alive at this time. Um, when Mark comes to, he sees the man running from the park. And so this happened right after they got to the park, which was around 10 p.m. 10, 15, 10, 20, you know. So all it's, this is it's July, but it's still dark. It's dark. By 10 o'clock. It's dark. And okay. so Jacksonville police officers are going to arrive on the scene between 1230 and 1240. Now, they're not that late to a call. They're on a regular round. They regularly come through the park about this time. And they, at this point, the tennis court lights have gone off because they are on a timer and they go off about midnight. And they are going to find them lying on the ground. Mark can't move. Mm. He's been shot twice. Mm -hmm. Donna is unresponsive. So they're going to get the ambulance there to take Donna and then they're going to get Mark and, and take them. Now the police also see a maroon Monte Carlo. Uh, they can see the keys in the ignition there. And um, they're going to notice that the only light burning was the mercury vapor light. So they get the backup. Mark tells them that he can identify the man if he sees him. And he gives this description, a white male, about five, 10, 200 pounds, a round face and is wearing overalls, a red shirt and a red baseball cap. So he's able to give them that description at that time. Okay. Detectives get dogs 
in from Huntsville, which is, you know, a good ways away. Not A couple of hours. Yeah. And the dogs are going to come in. They're going to get the scent of the man leaving the park. And then they're going to lose it on Roy Webb Road, which is near the Germania Springs Park. A woman who lives on Roy Webb Road says she heard the shots and she heard screaming and that the screams stopped when the shots were fired. But, but she doesn't call the police? No, didn't. I mean, just didn't think anything about it. She, you know, kind of come back and said, well, she just figured it was firecrackers, um, even though we're, we're a couple, couple of weeks past the, the of Independence July, Day. She's still thinking people are out there just, you know. <laughs> right. I guess like raising cane, lighting fireworks, whatever, and she just kind of dismisses it. And I, I, why she didn't call the police is, is lost on me. I, I really don't know. Um, so they're going to offer a reward for any information. The state's going to put up $5,000. Mr. Riddle, who um, owns the gas station, is going to offer an additional $1,000. And then Donna's father... His boss is going to offer up another $1,000 for any information on, you know, what's going on. July 22nd, 1977, Donna passes away at the hospital from her gunshot injuries. Um, They did remove two bullets from her brain. Uh, It had to have been... um, it's it's really amazing that she was holding on that long to have two bullets in her brain. Yeah. But I think there was a lot of speculation of was it a twenty two? Was it a you know, something with a smaller type bullet? A smaller caliber so that it would allow for it not yeah. to be a, a yeah. A life ending injury the second it entered. It, yeah. Right. Yeah. So just I don't know, a smaller, a smaller bullet, I'm guessing. But uh, we have the Calhoun County Sheriff at the time is Roy Sneed, and he's Rumors are just flying because as this happens, we live in a small town, Alabama, and rumors do fly. When when things happen, there's a lot of things that, that you know, people start talking. Oh, yeah. yeah. He has to say, there's a rumor goes around that um, that someone has been arrested in the murder of Donna and shoot the attempted murder of Mark. And he has to say, no, no one has been arrested. We still don't know anything we keep need you. looking yes we need your information we need you to to continue helping with us there was a truck scene parked near the intersection between nisbet lake road and roy webb road shortly before the shooting occurred they said it was a ford truck that had some white on the front white on the back and appeared this was a, a weird it appeared to be hand painted red hand painted hand painted okay. red i don't Sounds like this guy likes red so far. Maybe, maybe. Uh, And so this is seen at about 10 p.m. uh, by a couple who they're they're traveling through back to Piedmont after attending a nearby rodeo. You can't get any more Alabama than that on a Sunday night. Really cannot. Um, Unless it was a church rodeo. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, So Mark goes to the hospital and then the police, they come and they talk to him and, and they are trying to get him to help identify 
pictures. They're they're bringing in all kinds of things. They're they're going back, getting his story, talking a lot of that with him. And they want to get a description out to the public. They they want to use the public. They're not holding any information. You know, we've talked about cases previously where they hold a lot of information close to the vest. Mm-hmm. Not, nope. This this sheriff is like, here's what we got. Here's what we don't yeah. got. Somebody tell us something. We got to figure this out. This is yeah. a small town. Yeah. Somebody and he's up knows. for re-election in two years and he wants this solved <laughs> sooner than later. He, he absolutely does. Um, so police are, they're trying to link this crime with other assaults in the past six months. They're, they're looking at all the sex offenders in the area just because of the nature of the crime. Marcus told them what's happened. Um, and they are wanting to look into a crime that happened. There was another couple parked in an area and they want to talk to the man who tried to walk up on them and then was scared away and took off. And so, you know, very similar to what we've seen. We've had the the shooting I talked about in January of 77 and now here we are in July of 77. So they're wanting to... There's a lot, there's several things happening in the area that they're wanting to look at. I mean, just down the just down the road in Calhoun County, you've still got the Black Widow who's very active at this time. Still, really at that 70, time, it's yeah, seventy seven, okay. yeah, yeah. So, you know, go down the road and you might get poisoned, or or come to Jacksonville and you might get shot. <laughs> Hell, I mean, oh, what are you gonna man. do? I don't. All this is happening in the same area. This is a small area. This Very is not small. a large area. Probably, what, 50,000 people in the entirety of Calhoun County in the 70s? Yeah, I mean, statistically, this is um, this is scary. And, and, and just you wait, because that's going to get... Okay. I, I don't, I'm foreshadowing here, obviously. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, they're wanting to look into that. So, enter Officer W.E. Trailer, and he's with the ABI. And he's going to start doing his investigation. He goes on uh, the day that Donna passes away on the 22nd. He's going to randomly go into a shoe store called the Pick and Pay. And he's there just to get some shoes. I mean, I'm not sure why, but he's there to get some shoes. And there he meets a man named John Ellis Sparks. Mm-hmm. and. Sparks strikes up a conversation with him about the shooting. Like starts talking about the Germania Springs Park shooting and and then starts offering up all of this information. He says he was playing tennis in the park with a lady named Amanda Dennis that night. And he says that, um, you know, he gives this really detailed description of what what he was doing each time, each bit that night. He says he picked up Amanda at 7.15 p.m. They left about 9 p.m. They went uh, to a pizza place in Jacksonville. So they go at 7.15, they play tennis, then they leave. They go to a pizza place in Jacksonville. Uh, They leave there about 10 o'clock. He took her back to her car, which is a burnt orange Monte Carlo. And do you remember hearing about a Monte Carlo? Didn't you say that a minute I ago? Did, I did. So he left Jacksonville and went home. And he says he was driving a light blue Mercury. He says um, that there were other people playing 
uh, tennis there and they were in a white car and um, he says that he was wearing cut off blue jeans to play tennis. And he says that Amanda was wearing a loose t-shirt and cut off jeans as well, which doesn't really sound a whole lot like you're playing tennis. That, yeah, that's not my tennis attire. Even in the 70s, that sounds kind of strange to be in cutoff jeans and, and I mean, whatever. I'm not going to argue that because, yeah, you, you, you could still play tennis in those clothes. Yeah. But I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to split hairs about that. So Sparks also offers that he is in the process of a divorce. I mean, he's just talking. I mean, he's just like. He's just. Vomiting all of this information all to this, this police officer, to this, this ABI officer investigator who just came in to buy a pair of shoes at the pick and pay. Right, and he's um, just very into this. He is, he is very into this, and so uh, in a couple of weeks they're going to talk to Amanda Dennis and get her side of the story because that's who he said he was there playing tennis with. She said she met Sparks on Friday before the shooting. They met at a restaurant in Anniston. She said they talked for about 45 minutes and that was that. She said he called her on Saturday and again on Sunday. And he even mentioned going out Sunday evening. And then when they asked her if she played tennis, Amanda said that she wanted to play tennis but couldn't find a partner. So she went to her mother's instead. So none of this that he's saying is, is Amanda's story is completely different. And so they're able to verify, yes, that that's where she was. And and he is calling her apartment a lot on Sunday, constantly. In fact, phone records show that he's calling her every tw- just about every 20 minutes. He's calling her landline. So he's he has met this woman on Friday. He has become obsessed with her. He's become and obsessed by with Sunday, her. he's calling her every 20 minutes. Every 20 minutes. And at one point in time, he does speak with her roommate. And her roommate's like, you know, she's gone. I'll have her call you. you yeah, know, whatever. Stop calling. So when she comes back from her mother's on Sunday evening about 10.50 p.m. and goes into her apartment, the phone, she says the phone's actually ringing and so she picks it up and it's him and they talk for about 30 minutes she said his voice seemed very calm but she did not play tennis with him nor did she see him on sunday and so his story (laughs) involves her quite a bit another pick and pay store worker said that she works with him on July the 18th, which is the day after the shooting. And he told her that um, he was at the Germania Springs Park where the people got shot and that he was playing tennis with a married woman and um, (laughs) just offering up random things about the shooting. Excessive amount of detail. Yes, yes. Um, and so then there's a customer that meets Sparks at the pick and pay. And she says that uh, they struck up a conversation in the pick and pay. And that um, after they talked, they they did uh, exchange numbers. And he called her for about three weeks after this, just daily. This all happened before the shooting. So she sort of... Um, in the court documents, she, you know, and in the investigation, she's sort of like giving a little bit more insight into this obsessiveness that he gets yeah. with women. Um, Seems to be a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And he tells her um, that he had been questioned in, he later calls her back 
and tells her that he's been questioned in the the shooting at the Germania Park. So he's calling her. He's telling, you know, random cops that walk in the store. He's telling people he just met on Friday. He's 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 telling the other workers at the pick and pay. He's just talking about it constantly. Speaking of delusions of grandeur, <laughs> this guy is thoroughly uh, dipped in that. Yes. So then we move to August third, nineteen seventy seven, and the ABI worker trailer tells Sparks. He calls him. And tells him, your story's not checking out. And he tells them, let's meet and let's let's have another discussion. And so they agree to meet that night at 8 and discuss the story. He's like, I just want to get your, get your story straight here. Mm-hmm. It's not checking out. I've talked to some people, you know. But something happens and Trailer's not able to make that appointment that night. The officer. Oh, okay. not the not okay. uh, not Sparks, but they reschedule for a couple of weeks later. So it doesn't really seem like they're in a hurry to talk with him. But yeah. but again, you have to think this is 1977, small town area. I mean, I I ask myself, what would Andy? Yeah, Griffith but half assed is half assed. Yeah, what would Andy Griffith do? He would he would you know call call someone to come down to the jail and talk with him wouldn't, I mean, you know, I don't know. It wouldn't go on this long. No, probably not. So, um, in two weeks when they're supposed to meet, uh, Sparks is nowhere to be found. I will pretend to be surprised if you like. John Ellis Sparks (laughs) is gone. He gets a phone call, trailer does, gets a phone call from John's dad who officially reports him missing. He's like, we can't. We can't find John. We don't know where he is. So He's he reaches out. He reaches out. The, the police don't call the parents looking for him. The parents actually call the police and looking report, for him. And report. And, yeah. <laughs> wow. And he's he's not missing, folks. He's hiding. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, he's missing. And he's like, well, as a matter of fact, we want to talk to him. I don't know how that conversation yeah. went. But anyways, he reports him missing and he's basically skipped town. He gets a call. Finally, from Spark. Trailer does. Trailer does. Okay. I'm sorry. Let me specify. The ABI agent, Trailer, gets a call from John Ellis Sparks from a bus station where he's in Utah. He's on the way. (laughs) (laughs) He's not Utah, Alabama. Utah, the state. And there is a Utah, Alabama for those of you out there who don't. We don't spell it the right way. It's E-U-T-A-W. Yep. Utah. But it's Utah. Yeah. And so, uh, but he's actually in the state of Utah. He's on his way to Salt Lake City. He's at a bus stop. He's on his way to Asia. And he calls Trailer, the ABI agent, and he says, I'm the one y'all want for the shooting in Jacksonville. And he, uh, Trailer, you know, talks with him. Uh, Trailer says that he tells him his Miranda rights over the phone. You know, hey, whoa, you know, you mm-hmm. this just want to make sure you understand what you're saying to me. And, and be held against you. Yep. And he says, uh, you know, he keeps talking. He confesses. Um, and then so Trailer says, well, do you want to, do you want us to come get you? Or are you going to come turn yourself in? You know, you've, you've said all of these things. So now what are you going to do? You know, John tells him, 
I need you guys to come get me because he's he's out of money. I mean, he's made it as far as the Utah, a bus station in Utah, and he's out of money. And so he's right. he's he didn't plan ahead. He did not. He just he just got the heck out of town. You mm-hmm. know, panicked and and left. And so so trailer calls the local police to to get him at the bus station and take him in and hold him so that they can get get to him. So um, the Salt Lake City Police, they go to the bus station and then locate Sparks. Now he's there and when he sees them coming, he freaks out. He runs down to the basement of the bus station where there's a pizza place down there. And he takes one of the workers hostage with a knife for about 30 minutes after he has called the police originally so they get there and and then he takes this poor guy and the man's name is harold holdstoy he's the worker there that gets held hostage for about 30 minutes harold holdstoy was held hostage so it's a man good lord yes a little alliteration there i know it and so he's got a knife and and harold will testify that he um or in his interviews he'll say that um that he's saying all these crazy things like i don't want to kill again you know, a lot of incriminating things. He started out thinking it was a holdup and he was heavenly happy after he found out that I ran out of H's. Sorry. Oh no. Halt Scott. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, um, he tries to negotiate Harold for one of the police officers, but he says, I'll, I'll let my hostage go, but I got to get, have one of you guys unarmed as a hostage. And, so what do you, the police, yeah, they didn't, they said no. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. Just hold on to Harold. Sparks. No, thank you, John. We'll, um, we're going to stay right here with our guns on you. So mm-hmm. we're not going to release our weapon and, you know, go into your custody. Allow you to hold us hostage. I guess you don't know until you ask, right? Right, right. And so um, now back to Mark. Mark is paralyzed and it started being from the neck down. But he eventually regains feeling in his arms. And this is going to be about October of 1977. He's going to start having some feeling in his arms. And so he is in a facility where they do four hours of physical therapy a day. And he's got a a wheelchair that operates by the way he turns his head. And he's... um you know, trying to rehab. And in the meantime, they're showing um, pictures of him, pictures to him. And, and they're, they have a picture of John Ellis Sparks that they show him. And immediately he goes, that's the guy. When he sees John's picture and the way they obtain John's picture is uh, after the big conversation in the pick and pay, where he just tells the guy everything. Trailer comes back to the pick and pay with a deputy, Larry Amerson. And he's a deputy at the time, and he ends up being the sheriff. I was going to say that name sounds about, he's the current sheriff in, or no, a, a previous on, sheriff. He is retired. In uh-huh. Calhoun County. Yeah, he, he goes yeah. on to be the sheriff, but Larry is, a, is another officer at the time, a deputy at the time, and, okay. and he brings him with him and they go into the pick and pay and they say, Hey John, you know, you talking to us and we didn't want to take your picture. And they, 
you know, they take his picture, whatever story they give him, and and they take he allows them to take his picture. And so then they show it in the meantime to Mark, and Mark says, That is him without a doubt. You know, and Mark got a really good look at this guy. I mean, you go back for to a the long crime. time. Yeah. And and forever that man's face will probably be just burnt into his memory because yes. of, of that night, the traumatic event. And so John Ellis Sparks family, they are they just can't believe this. They cannot believe that he's done this. I mean, as you would if if one of your family members does something like this, you would, I don't know, you, maybe you have family members who if they do something like this, you'll go, yep. Oh, yeah, that guy. I mean, yeah, yeah, not shocked. Um, but they are, they're very shocked that he's done something like this. They can't believe it. But, of course, Mark is saying, that's the guy. That is him without a shadow of a doubt. Um, now, as he's doing, as Mark is doing his therapy, he's, as I said, he's doing, you know, four hours a day, and he is you know, trying to um, get some shred of life back. He wants to go into um, coaching. And he's actually says that he's inspired by a man named Bill Tucker, who was the captain of the Auburn football team in the 1940s and became a teacher. And after he got out of college and became a teacher. Bill Tucker was triggered with polio and he still taught and coached from a wheelchair. Do you know, you've heard of this man, Scott? I didn't know. I just, I was trying to think, I was, I thought you were going to say car accident. And then when you said polio, I thought, oh yeah, back in the fifties, that was mm-hmm. still probably when this guy was, was a young a, man. a problem. Uh, and yeah. so um, he uses this man as his inspiration to keep going and keep, you know, just remember, I mean, he, when I was talking about them, they were just incredibly great people. And he continues to be an incredibly great person as he's going through his rehab and, and uh, helping the police with that night. So trailer uh, and another officer go to Utah to pick up Sparks, and he's brought back to Alabama. So eventually, the standoff at the pizza parlor in the basement ends. <laughs> it ends. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's right. uh, he does a standoff, and then finally he just gives up. Okay. I was thinking maybe maybe somebody dropped him with a thirty-eight uh, between the <laughs> eyes, but I no, guess not. Okay. No, no, no. So he goes. Um, he comes back to Alabama, and they put him in a lineup, and Mark goes and immediately again picks him out um, and says, yep, him. So he's identified him in picture and then seen him in real life and says, yep, that's that's the one. So uh, we're going to go to trial coming up soon. But I want to remind you about the very, very first crime. Remember the very, very first crime I mm-hmm. talked about, uh, about the couple in the car and, and uh, Jacqueline and Kenneth. Well, um, in the meantime of all this happening, uh, and we fast forward to July 10th of um, 1978, a man by the name of Douglas Eugene Bushy confesses to that shooting. To the first shooting. To the first shooting. But then he goes on to confess to the Germania Springs Park shooting. Which we know he didn't. Well, he later is going to recant that story. And then Mark, you know, looking at pictures of Bushy says, I don't, I've never seen that man before. Right. Um, and so 
the the Sparks defense team is going to jump on this. Okay. And they're going to say, you know, wait a minute and use that. But as you do, I mean, sure. I've got another guy here who says he did it. You've got my client. That's what you have to do. I mean, that's the best defense. That's your only defense, right? Right. That's that's the best defense. Um, Exactly. And so, um, but he has recanted. So. Bushy, you know, he first said he did it. Now he said he's he didn't do it. Um, but he's he's confessed to the first shooting, and he did not recant that one for sure. I, okay. I don't know why you would. Anyways, so um, <clears throat> so Sparks decides he's going to recant as well. So now he's going to say, "No, I didn't do it." This guy, you know, Bushy did it, of course. Yeah, um, and so now. He's his attorneys. They're going to look into this. They're going to look, you know, study this and make sure they get the right guy. All right. So the trial for Bushy and the trial for Sparks is on the same day. What? Which I still can't understand how that's possible, but here we are. Okay. Wow. Okay. So Bushy is going to be charged with the shooting of Jacqueline and James, the very first couple. He pleads guilty. Okay. And then, I don't even know how this works, or if he did this first, he's going to testify in Sparks' trial. Uh, Down the hallway at the Calhoun County Courthouse in Anniston, I guess. This is financially efficient. I guess it is. (laughs) I'm going to give them props for this, okay? So, he's going to get into court and, and be one of the... I, what, what do you call it? He's just going to testify. A prosecuting witness. A pros- I, I, <sighs> Am I trying to say a prosecution witness? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess. I don't know what the hell he is at this point. Yeah. Sorry, I've, I've said a bad word there. I've said lots well, of them. It's not the first time. Today. No, it's not. Um, so Mark is going to go to court and he, Mark is the victim. Remember that, you know, our, our wonderful, wonderful guy. And he's going to identify Sparks in court. He's going to go over again the story of what happened about that night. Mm-hmm. And then Bushy is going to testify and tells them where he was that night. And he's going to say that he was there near the park that night. He heard the shots, but he left and didn't have anything to do with it. But the reason that he was at the park is because he had his gun and he was there to do the same thing. No. he was, So his defense is the other guy beat me to it. The other guy got to them before I did. What? are the chances that you are in the Germania Springs Park in Jacksonville, Alabama, and one guy shoots you and your fiance, but only before another guy can do it. Right. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm never going mm-hmm. to a picnic in a park again. Right. Oh, my gosh. And so that's, that's why he, that's what he testifies. He's like, I heard it, I, you know, but I left. I mean, you know. Because, I mean, it was spoiled. There was nobody left to shoot, so I'm going to... I left. So, Bushy committed that first crime that I told you about. And then Sparks committed this crime. And Mark, of course, testifies that he, he's never seen Bushy before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, right. And says it was, it was Sparks. It I was mean, not, Sparks was right up on him, and he was not disguised. For a, for a length of time. Yeah. Yes. They have testimony from a psychiatrist at the time, and this is this is very seventies from the Alabama Lunacy Commission. 
in 19... Stupid is as stupid does here in Alabama. The Alabama Lunacy Commission stated that Sparks did not have any psychiatric disorders. What now? So they're they're <laughs> saying he's he's good. So Daffy Duck wasn't Take available and they sent this guy instead. Yeah, we, yep. Got it. And so basically, you know, don't don't try that insanity crap. He's fine. Oh, well now, now I get it. Now that you've said it that way, because yeah. yeah. He doesn't have he doesn't have any psychiatric disorders or okay. anything like that. And so they come through with their verdict of guilty and he gets thirty years. In prison for this crime. Okay. And Bushy went on to kind of serve his time. He had an escape, and and they got him back. And anyways, that that's the um, that's how Alabama does the Zodiac, right there. Well, at least they got somebody uh, incarcerated for some amount of time. Whether he's crazy or not, I guess is mm-hmm. a matter of some conjecture. But hey, yeah. At least at least we got him. Yeah. Thank God he didn't write a letter or everyone would have been completely perplexed, especially the guys at the loony bin. I'm sorry, what did did, you call it? The Alabama Lunacy Lunacy Commission. Commission. He did write a letter to the Aniston Star and said he was innocent. But he didn't, it wasn't a cryptogram. Well, I was going to say, was it in code? It wasn't in code or anything like that. But these, the parallels are are just I think if it said said he was innocent, it was in code because it was opposite day the day he wrote that. <laughs> yes. Um, so if you like that story and you want to hear it told um, very similar to the way I told it, but by two men who are actually comedians. Um, and oh, I know and that's that, the I know podcast that, that you strange. mentioned. That's small town murder. Okay. So like I said, I'm giving them their props for, for this uh, case and for the phrase, the Alabama Zodiac, because I ha- I didn't see it referred to this in any other of my research. Just these two guys. Um, from the two guys from small town. Right. So I'm going to, you know, check, check that out and see, see what you think. I'm, I'm a very big fan. Um, me too. Where, where are they based? Those two guys, uh, New York, no, uh, Arizona, Arizona. Sorry. Okay. All right. I was going to say, maybe we could get them on the show sometime, but no, we'd have to call them. Away. Uh, and they're like really big time podcasters. I know. That's do, why I want to get them on our show or maybe do, we could go on their show. <laughs> <laughs> they do a lot of traveling live shows and things like that. So you can just check them out and see what you think. Mm-hmm. But I saw this case. I was already researching John Ellis Sparks for okay. our podcast. And then just because I subscribed to their show and that popped up, I was like, oh my goodness, I have this guy on our list to do. Okay. And um, yeah, so it's it's a... It's an interesting case, and there's a lot of court documents you can read. And the Anderson Star did an incredible job, um, you know, with their articles and covering it. And um, so there's a lot of material out there where you can find information about it. But yeah, more rabbit holes, i.e., the Zodiac case. <laughs> that's how Alabama does the Zodiac. Right? Wow. All right. All right. So that rounds out our March. Zodiac Madness. Wow, we spent the whole month on something that started with the letter Z, uh, and I'm really glad that we're the finished with it now. Uh, <laughs> I'm ready to move on to the next thing. Yes, yes. And so, everybody, uh, go follow us on social media. Uh, give us a five star rating. Email us true crime at easy straight. No, wait. 
True Crime on Easy Street at gmail.com. Like, share, subscribe. Thank you. And give us some suggestions for a case if you if you have a pet case that you want. Yeah, we've got a box full of t-shirts that aren't going to give themselves away. If you want one, you better either come to us with 20 bucks or a damn good idea for the next show. <laughs> but more or less the $20. Yeah, yeah mostly the 20 bucks because somebody's got to pay for those. And we've already done it once, and so we need to get our money back. So we'll do this again soon, right, guys? Yeah. I can't wait to see you guys again. I miss you already. (laughs) Um, Good night, everybody.